all the money I saved for 20 months, it was all gone. There was absolutely no money left. 20 months of doing the dishes, sleep on the, in the restaurant, not doing anything, it was all gone. I'm Shada Omidvar, and this is The Hopeful, Episode 5, Winter. In Episode 4, we left off when my dad heads back to Yorit de Mar after another failed attempt to cross the Atlantic Ocean, this time to Canada. But not all hope was lost. There was still one sliver left. Back while my dad was working in the restaurant, he applied for refugee status in Madrid through the UN Refugee Agency. He met a man named Mehdi on the bus to Madrid. Mehdi was trying to get to Texas, where his wife and son were. Mehdi was ultimately accepted, but my dad's application was rejected. Feeling sorry for my dad, Mehdi told him that if he ever needs help in the future, he'd be there to support him. So after being deported back to Barcelona, my dad decided to call Mehdi. I said, Mehdi, all gone. What do you mean all gone? I said, yeah, whatever it was, what I worked for, it's all gone. I went. I got caught. They sent me back again to Barcelona. He said, don't worry, I'll send you some money. He sent me $600 US, just enough to buy a ticket. Now he just needed another passport since all the previous ones were confiscated by customs officers. My dad returns to the passport seller, gets a new passport, and very quickly books another flight with the money Mehdi gave him. I said, this is what happened. He felt so bad. He dumped a whole box of passports. He said, which passport do you want? Which nationality do you want? Just grab it and go. God damn it, I just want you to go because you suffered enough in here for the last two years. So I got the passport again, and then he got the passport for uh, the guy was born 1939 or whatever. He just hand changed it. It was such a lousy work on the passport. He did that with a felt pen, the date he changed it. It is such a lousy job. Change a picture and the picture required the glasses too. We got the ticket at the same time. Again, we got the same ticket again at Barcelona. Madrid, Madrid, direct flight to Montreal. The fact that my dad still followed through on this plan with a passport that had the date changed with a felt pen is an incredible leap of faith. Understandably, my dad is overtaken by anxiety once again. Is his fourth attempt going to fail? So the plan we made, I said, uh, the, the custom gets crowded. You go through the custom because when you leave the country, they're not as picky as you entered. So they'll let you get you through. So I went, I remember clear, I went to the bathroom, washed my face. I washed my face. I was so nervous. I was so uptight. I went to the lineup and then because it was a lineup, next kiosk opened up. And he pointed the finger at me and said, you come. I went forward. Now I put the reading glasses, uh, uh, prescription glasses on, uh, on me. And I got lightheaded. I got dizzy. I wasn't used to it. So I practically, I couldn't see where I'm going because we borrowed it from this old man. So I got to the officer. He opened up the passport. He scanned it. He scanned it. And minutes later, he stamped it across the border. Just like that, my dad made it through Spanish customs. For the record, Passport technology back then was not like it is today. Now it's really hard to get through customs with a fake passport because the computer software is so powerful, it can easily detect a fraudulent passport number. My dad was in shock. 
The first thing he did was call his friends in Spain, Amir and Nader. Amir, I made it through. And I knew uh, this time it was a safe bet. It was a safe, sure thing to make it through. Waited, you know, I don't know how long or so, hop on the plane bound for Montreal. And I remember I, when I uh, coming towards Montreal, I looked at uh, the window. I saw snow, it was white snow with everywhere. As he looked out the window to a snow-blanketed Montreal, he thought of his friends. I asked him if he felt sad leaving them. All along, you know, the plant, the seeds was planted in between me. This is only a temporary. It is going to be a, it's going to be a departure sooner or later. So no, I had no feeling of sadness to go. I was more satisfied to leave more than anything else. My dad was a nervous wreck for the whole 10-hour flight. He couldn't eat or sleep. Before my dad got to customs in Montreal, he had one last thing to do. He had to ditch his fake passport. This is a super common practice. It's to the advantage of the migrant and the passport seller to not have these passports floating around and found. My dad had bought the passport to get on the plane from Madrid to Montreal, not to get off. Once he got off the plane in Montreal, he walked through the tunnel towards the gate, and then he spotted a garbage bin. And right away, he threw in his Italian passport as he walked by. Once at customs, my dad needed some way to tell the officers that he intended to enter Canada as a refugee. Before my dad left Barcelona, Nader helped him write a letter declaring refugee status. When he landed in Montreal, the first thing my dad did when he was greeted by customs was hand over this letter. I never forget a custom says, uh, welcome to Canada. I pointed there, so I have a seat there. Uh, a few minutes later, they took me to the room uh, with no window or nothing. Somebody came, opened the door. He says, are you hungry? I could not believe it. Someone actually was concerned uh, about my well-being. I said, yes. They brought me a bag of sandwich. And I knew right then, then I'm home. I really knew I am, I'm home. I said, my God. I was beaten. I was put in jail. And then these people came first and they asked, are you hungry? And I it was such a relief. I felt in love right there, right and then. Just like I felt in love with the girl I saw the first time. If someone just simple gesture, ask, are you hungry? It showed the character. It showed how wonderful this place can be for me. I came to their country illegally. You know, I've been against all the things, but yet they asked me whether I'm hungry or not. I sat back and I relaxed almost like you pour a Uh, water over the fire. It just calmed him down so much. Within an hour or so, a translator was brought in to help interview my dad and explain his situation. And I said, just tell me yes or no. Are they going to send me back? She shook his head. She said no. My dad was obviously incredibly relieved to hear this, but it didn't mean he was free to go just yet. He was told that he would have to stay under their supervision until his hearing. They took my dad to a holding center that was something between a detention center and a motel. They took me to 
the high-rise like apartment, like a hotel-like, but no doors. Nice private room with a bed, clean, nice, but there was no doors. The guards were in the hallway. We were there for three days. After three days, I had another three, four hours interview. They showed him the map where I ran away from, all the story, uh, all what I've been through, what I've been through uh, uh, after three or four hours interview. They kept me for one more night, and then they said, you're free to go. Uh, they gave me an address, they gave me a bus uh, bus pass. I said, free to go? Yeah, you're free to go until uh, we call you for uh, your date, for uh, your court date. And I could not walk. I never forget the day I could not walk. I got into the bus. This is my sound stupid, but I kissed the doors. I kissed the glasses. I was such a relief. And I said, I made it. Just like that, my dad was a refugee claimant in Canada. His migration story was far from over, and he would be going through the immigration process for years until he became a citizen. But for now, he felt relief. To put my dad's arrival in Canada in context, at the time in the mid-80s, many Iranians who were able to make it to Canada were accepted as refugee claimants because of the political upheaval in Iran. Today, it would be very different for an Iranian person to come to Canada as a refugee. They would probably have to go to great lengths to prove they face persecution because of things like political affiliation, religion, or sexual orientation. While my dad figures out his first steps in his new home, He's placed in a shelter in downtown Montreal. And I never forget how, how long after. I, I used to dream. They'd send me back. I get up middle of the night soaking and sweating from the fear of they're going to deport me or they're going to send me back. I've tried to talk to my dad about this, relating it to potential PTSD caused by the traumas of his journey. Because even today... Anytime my dad crosses the U.S. border during a family road trip or is in line at the airport customs going on vacation, he breaks out into a sweat and his hands start shaking. But he didn't even know what that meant. I don't know that my dad's generation and especially people with similar experiences as him have had the time or know-how to think about the effects of their journey on their mental health. All he ever focused on is the future. So I was in Montreal for a Five days or six days, I decided one night go out for a walk. And obviously I had no idea what, how cold the Montreal gets and all that. I went for half a block. Did I mention this was happening in January? Montreal, in January. He had no idea what kind of weather he was in for. Tehran can reach as low as zero degrees Celsius in January, whereas Montreal can reach as low as minus 25. All my mustache froze. When I came back, I said, no, this is too cold. Uh, I can't. And through the friend who was uh, staying in the same camp, I made a call to uh, a couple who I met in Barcelona, Shaney and Mo. He's talking about Shahina and Mo Peru from the last episode. By the way, my dad sometimes refers to Shahina as Shaney. If the offer still stands, I go to Vancouver. They said, yeah. It can come, no problem. So I went to immigration. I said, I want to go to Vancouver. Why Vancouver? Because I said, I know people uh, I met in Spain. I want to go in Vancouver, to Vancouver. 
but Vancouver is far. Uh, how much money do you have? I said, I have $20 in my pocket. He said, do you know how far is Vancouver? I said, I had absolutely no idea how far is in Vancouver. He said, it's about 4,000, 5,000 kilometers away. My mouth just dropped. I said, I couldn't even comprehend. Vancouver and Montreal can be this far. And I said, so how are you going to go? I said, well, I guess I have to walk. He said, no, 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 you're crazy. You can't walk this far. No, no, no. We help you out if you decided to go. That's okay. We'll help you out. I love this story because there is still so much of this Amir within the present day Amir. Adamant, stubborn, and unwilling to let anyone or anything get in the way of what he wants. Sometimes he's stubborn to a fault. What he didn't know is how vast Canada's landscape is, with winter temperatures dropping as low as minus 40 degrees Celsius in some regions. If he were to walk without stopping, it would take him 910 hours. They gave me a bus money, uh, and then I got the address direction from Shaney. Said, come to Vancouver, and then take the bus from Vancouver to Vernon, where the, where the house is. I had absolutely no idea where it is, what it is. My dad was Vernon-bound. He'd be going to live with the only people he knew in the country, Shahina and Mo Peru, who he met by absolute chance in Spain. Because she told me, come to Vancouver, take the bus from Vancouver to uh, Vernon, I wasn't, I didn't know how much the bus ticket is, uh, would be. So three days, I was a nerve wreck. Not sure how much the, the bus ticket will cost. In order to make sure he had enough money to buy his next bus ticket, my dad lived off of chicken broth that he purchased from bus stop vending machines along the way with a few packet of crackers. For three days, that was all he ate. When the bus initially came to Vancouver from the Portman Bridge, I never, almost like a love at the first sight. When he came, I see the city light from over Portman Bridge, and I said to myself, oh my God, what a place. What a place it is, this place. And I, I'll fall in love with the Vancouver from the moment I, I, drive, I came in. My dad wouldn't end up in Vancouver just yet. He had a brief layover in Vancouver before catching another bus to Vernon. And luckily, the bus ticket didn't cost him all the money he had, so he could afford to buy himself a muffin and a coffee while he waited for his next bus. Once he arrived, my dad called up Shahina and Mo. It was just after dawn. I said, I'm here. She picked me up. It was the six or seven o'clock in the morning and I arrived and uh, took me to her house. And she breakfast, she showed me the uh, room. She said, this is your room. And I was in the basement. It was nice, clean room. Stay here. So I got comfortable and I started writing a letter to Mehti who lives in Texas, who helped me uh, to give me the money for it, buying, a, buying an airline ticket again. So in that letter, I thanked him so much for because of him, I achieved my goal. I arrived, and then now I'm safe now. So and he was so happy. He responded so happy. A week later, I got the letter back from him. He was happy. And I said to him, I'll pay you the money as soon as uh, I collect some money. So I had virtually no no money left. In due time, my dad would repay Mehdi the $600. 
They lost touch after that, but when we started making this podcast, I thought it might be worth getting in touch with him. With the bit of information my dad had about him, his full name, the state he lives in, and some details about his occupation, I typed it all into Google and shortly after, I found his name linked to a university directory where he is a professor with an email address. So I quickly sent an email to that address and received a reply back within two days. It was Mehdi. He sent me his phone number and that same day, my dad hopped on a call with him. My dad thanked him again for helping him come to Canada so many years ago. He told him a bit about how far he's come in life, asked him about his own family, and they both hoped that they could meet again someday soon. Back at Shahina and Moe's, money was tight and my dad needed to start earning a living as soon as possible. One uh, week into my staying, her husband came home. He said, I found you a job. I said, oh, great, because I was a mechanic from Iran and I thought he found me a job in a mechanic shop. The job was at a mechanic shop, but it wasn't as a mechanic. He'd be washing cars instead. Shahina was opposed to this plan because Vernon Winters could be really cold, like minus 20 degrees Celsius cold. She thought it was too early for my dad to get a job and wanted him to be able to settle in more first. But with some pressure from her husband and his empty wallet, my dad took the job. I was washing 50 cars a day in a minus temperature. Warm up the water, put my hands, you know, that bit practical, you know, I have washed the cars by hand, 50 cars every day. When we wrote this episode, my co-writer Portia made an incredible observation about this moment in the story and how it parallels the story about my grandmother, Mamanjun, washing her children's clothes in a frozen pond. Back then, the minimum wage was $3.25 an hour. So he says, I only can give him the minimum wage. And Mo spoke on my behalf. He said, yeah, we'll take it, no problem. He can start work. So from dealership, to Shane or Mo's house, it was about 45 minutes to an hour walk each way. So sometime in the morning, they dropped me off to work. Sometime uh, I had to walk back home. So every morning I would fill up the bucket, wash cars, 40, 50 cars uh, every day to the, uh, till noon, warm up the water, put the gloves on, wash cars, come to the shop, and then they will ask me to fix cars as well. And I still was getting $3.25 an hour. Desperate for a paycheck, my dad didn't complain. I don't know if he noticed or not, or was just staying quiet, but he was obviously taken advantage of. He was getting paid minimum wage to do two jobs, one of which requires skilled training, which he had from back in Iran. Keeping focus, my dad decided he needs to move out. Summer was around the corner and he knew Shahina and her husband would be hosting guests and didn't want to intrude. He found himself an apartment for $250 a month. Sounds like a sweet deal, unless you're making minimum wage. My uh, paycheck was $300 a month. So the rent, $250 pay, I had to live with $50 a month. It wasn't enough to eat properly. $50 per month could afford my dad a chicken carcass, which he made broth from, a bag of rice, and a carton of eggs twice a month. One day, my dad gets a call from immigration. It's time for his interview. He has to go into the Kelowna office, which is about 55 kilometers from Vernon. So Shahina offers to drive him to the appointment. She had some errands to do, so she planned to pick him up afterwards and head back home together. 
So Shaney came early in the morning, picked me up, took me to Verna, uh, Kelowna for my interview at 9 o'clock. As we were going from Vernon to Kelowna on Highway 97, uh, back then there was a super value, two super value along the highway. She pointed out, she said, this super value, when you're done, come back, stand here, then uh, we'll go back together. I'm going to go do some shopping, then we'll go back together. I said, okay, no problem. And we went to immigration. And I was getting off. She asked me, do you have any money? I said, no, I don't have any money. She gave me a $20 bill. And then as I was getting off, she said, no, that $20 is too much. Here's a, give me that. I'll give, uh, she gave me a $2 bill. That then was $2 bill. She gave me $2. I said, okay. So I went done my interview. And I came out. My interview lasts about an hour, an hour and a half. Because they just want to ask one more question make sure I'm here, whatever it was all done. And I was coming out. I went to the coffee shop. I was hungry. I didn't have breakfast. So I looked uh, uh, in the fridge or in the coffee shop trying to calculate what can I buy, what can I eat or drink. It would cost $2. So I found a muffin and a coffee. It was $1.80. I bought that. I ate it. Went to super value. It was about 11 o'clock, 11.30. I, I, when I stood by the entrance of the super value, I waited, I waited, I waited. 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 6 or 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock. I waited. It was getting dark, and I thought, oh my God, this, where is this lady? By the way, super value is a grocery store franchise that's only in British Columbia and Alberta. I was getting tired, hungry, six o'clock in the afternoon. And I went to kiosk, uh, phone, pay phone. I phone collect. She answered the phone. And I thought, what, what, what do you mean? Are, are you there? I'm here. You're there, you're home? She said, yeah, I couldn't find you. So I didn't know what to do. I couldn't find you. I said, what do you mean you couldn't find me? You said to me, super value. I'm standing in front of super value. Which super value are you standing? I said, I don't know. You show me one super value. I'm here. She said, oh, my God, you stand on a wrong super value. I said, how would I know? I don't know, Kelowna. You should have known. You should have known. Why did you go home? You know, I, I have no money. I cannot go anywhere. I got to go to work tomorrow. So I got so upset, I hang up the phone. And I started walking. And I walked and I walked. No one picked me up. I walked for 54 kilometers. It took me almost nine and a half hours, 10 hours. No one picked me up. It was dark. I don't blame people. I mean, it was dark. It was hard. And I was so down. And I said to myself, I have absolutely nobody to call. Not even one person to call. All alone, I find myself so lonely and so alone, so no one I can re rely on or call. I mean, I question myself so much, so many times. Why am I doing this? A couple of kilometers before Vernon, finally, someone driving by picked him up. Somebody picked me up because I was limping. I was, I was hurting. I was... Uh, I, 
it was walking like almost like you know my one of my legs was it would give up on me and i had no choice and i had to go to uh, home to go to work the next day so he picked me up uh, i went home i was home by i think about four in the morning and all that and i went trying to get some sleep i woke up six thirty seven o'clock walked to work and by then i all my muscles, all my legs were just cramped. I couldn't walk straight. So I went to work and my boss saw me. He said, why are you walking like that? While I trying to explain, Muhammad drove by, stopped by. And then he said, oh, you made it home? I said, yeah, I walked home in a sarcastic way. He said, oh, that's good. You needed some exercise too. My boss is standing was next to us, and I heard it. And then after uh, Muhammad Omo left, he said, what happened? I said, I walked from Kelowna to Vernon. And he was so upset. He was so upset. Why did you call me? I said, I didn't have your phone number. His name is Bob Peters. He was so upset. He gave me his phone number. He said, call me anytime. Don't do that again. Uh, you, that's a long way. I said, I had no choice. Well, you want to go home? I said, no, I, I don't want to go home. I need to work. My dad was feeling down. He felt totally alone, and he was barely making it financially. His first few weeks in Canada had not been easy. I asked him if he had any regrets. I never looked back. That's actually a very good question. I uh, Years, years later, I... I told all of you know, my family or whoever came first, they went through the rough time, whatever. And that was my motto, or that was my advice to them was, no matter how much I tried, no matter how much difficulty I had here, I never regret one day. From the moment I left, I came back, especially when I came to Canada, I never regret my decision. Uh, even though as th- things may as hard as it can be, but this is a, this is where you want to be. This is this is the country you want to be. I never ever regret for making this decision. I was I was happy. Yes, I was suffering. I had a hard time. The life was very tough at the time. After a few months at his new job, work started to slow down, and his hours got cut. I was barely making even my rent money. So I will go complain. I said, I was making only $300 a month. And you uh, now my paycheck is 250 a month. I hardly have every money to even to eat. I said, sorry, uh, not much we can do. This is, it is what it is. We were there. One of the mechanics says, Amir, it's, why don't you go work in the orchard? I said, what is an orchard? Oh, you can pick the cherries. Cherry, pick cherries. He said, yeah, is it now Okanagan is the season for uh, picking cherries. But you need to have a car to go from here because Oyama, it's about 20 kilometers away from Vernon. So I said, I don't have a car. He said, go to the bus. Maybe they can give you a car on an installment. Bob Peters sold my dad a car for $400, which would get deducted from his paycheck in installments. With his new car, my dad headed to work at an orchard, picking cherries for $5 a box. So the next day, uh, I started at 5 in the morning, go picking cherries. So from the 4, 5, or 6 o'clock in the morning, I picked cherries 
till six o'clock in the afternoon. I managed to fill up maybe four boxes. So I make $20 a day for uh, 10 hours a day. Four by 20 bucks. I thought that's great. At least I can buy some food or decent food and all that. So two days I go to work, washing cars, fixing cars. The rest of the week, I will go pick cherries because the cherry season was short. Every summer when I was a kid, my family spent a lot of time in the Okanagan where Vernon is, and we'd always make a stop to go cherry picking. It's a bit surreal for me to think about this as a family activity and about one time in particular where my dad paid something like $80 for a box of cherries that we spent maybe an hour picking for fun. Meanwhile, there were migrants working in these fields earning much less for an entire day's worth of work. Migrants continue to make up a majority of Canada's agricultural workforce today, and they don't have an easy time. Many of them are tied to their employer through the type of visa they have, sometimes forcing them to endure harsh conditions, racism, and unsafe working environments. And often, they don't have access to health care or social services, and many of them end up spending huge amounts of time working in Canada without ever getting citizenship. I asked my dad what it was like to see people working in the farms we used to visit. Was that something that you were like, that, that was hard for you to do, to go back to pick cherries with pleasure? At the, when the first time we went, I got very emotional. And I look back in all those, all those trees, all those ladder, all those buckets and all that. And I had to, uh, basically, I had to sit back and reflect. You know, not too long ago, I was here picking cherries. And then at the same time, I told you guys, I did this. At the same time, also have a respect for others, people that were working or are less fortunate than you are at the moment. Have a respect for those people. Because your father, not so long ago, was doing this to make a living, basically to survive. And I think you guys also respect that and understood and then had a different way of looking at other people. And then also had a, had a great, better concept or better grasp of it after picking cherries. So it was about one week into my uh, picking cherries. We were uh, having lunch. And all the, you know, the Canadian uh, geese that were, that were coming to the orchard eating apples. So while we were eating, and I thought, oh, my God, look at all the hundreds of them, thousands of them, they're coming eating all those uh, apples. He said, yeah, these guys, whatever the apple fills or the cherries fills, uh, they come, they eat all the fruit they eat. And I, while we were talking, I said, it's been a month, five months or whatever, I haven't eaten any meat. I had, it, you know, had a decent dinner. The or- owner of the... Orchard was sitting at the same, uh, as well. He said, what? What do you mean you didn't eat any meat? I said, I had no money. I cannot afford it. I'll, I'll just eat in the basic, what is possible. So I went to my trees. I started picking the cherries. Within a few minutes, I heard a gunshot. I docked. I said, my God, what was that gunshot for? And then he called my name, Amir. I said, what? He said he pointed out, he shot one of those, the geese for me. He said, go get it and make sure no one sees it. I said, oh my God, I couldn't believe it. He shot this guy. I said, what, what did you do? He said, you said he didn't eat meat so he can take this one and eat it. 
My dad might have underestimated how difficult it would be to prepare a goose. He was still a city boy, after all. And then trying to skin it or take the feathers out. It was like 5, 6 in the afternoon I got home. It took me until 4 in the morning. What? <laughs> to take the uh, feather off. It was such a hard work. My back was killing me. I was leaning sideways on the sink, trying to take the thing out. And then I cleaned it, cleaned it, cleaned it. So by four in the morning, it was finished. I cleaned it. I took all the feathers out, washed it, whatever. And I looked at it. It was a beautiful size of a duck or a geese or whatever. It was beautiful size. And then I just couldn't have it by myself. By this point, my dad had made a couple of friends. Actually, this is where he met Siavash. We heard from him in episode two when he told us about his experience during the Iranian Revolution. So I phoned him. I said, uh, this is what happened. Uh, I'm going to bring it on a weekend. We'll have it together. They were so happy, quite excited about it. So I took the geese to Kamloops on a weekend. And at the time, he was living with his girlfriend, so we cooked the geese together, and then I cooked it, and then they cooked all the vegetables or whatever. And then we ate it together. Till today, his girlfriend still remembers it. He said, I never, ever had another uh, duck like that, you know, the way you cooked it or whatever. It tasted so nice. I got both my dad and Siavash on the phone to relive this moment. I wanted to know more about this bird. I miss you, man. I really miss you. Same, same here. Same. <laughs> I always, always talk about you. I always tell friends uh, about Amir and blah blah. Yeah. So I want to. I. I mean, I, I want to know more about this, this. This dinner with this goose. So I mean, which is probably kind of funny for you to think about now. Siavash as a vegan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Of course, we we used to have goose in Iran as well. Because uh, uh, you know, uh, my mom. Uh, actually was very good at uh, cooking at it. And it's very well known that it's hard to cook. I was very impressed with, uh, you know, so goose, how are you going to make goose? <laughs> hard to make. <laughs> but it was delicious anyway. But what I recall, it was it was amazing. It done an amazing job, you know. Yeah. That no, was yeah. always, always good at uh, everything that he touched. You know, we met through the front 40 some odd years ago. And then that goose, uh, I think that was, a, to me, that was the strongest friendship we started with that goose. This moment for my dad and his friends must have been so joyful. How significant something so simple, like a good meal with a friend, can help you forget everything you have suffered up until that moment. Just like his drunken escape from reality with Libya Montez, my dad had a moment of peace. This wouldn't be the end of his troubles. Tomorrow, he'd be back to reality, but at least for tonight, he would eat like a king. The next day, he was back to work at the orchard. Some people, they used to do it like 10, 15 a box a day, but I only could do maybe five, six tops. It was a hard work, but again, it was $20, $30 a day. Trying to keep up with his coworkers, my dad saw some cherries left near the end of a long branch that he couldn't reach with a ladder. So he decided to climb up the tree. They give you one of those metal buckets. And with the bucket, I start walking on the branch. It was a thick branch. I made it two. Third step, I heard a crack. I turned around to go back. As soon as I made a move, the branch gave away. I felt maybe 
10 feet on my side and I heard a crack. Next time on The Hopeful. I was getting more comfortable, but I was getting, I was very lonely. Then I went to Peter, which was the owner of the place, and I said, look, you've got to give this guy a chance. So many places, one place I never forget, the guy says, what are you doing here? Go back home, you don't belong here. I had to cover up a lot for him. <laughs> I had two jobs to do. And here comes Zinat with her uh, curly hair and all that. She walks in and I thought, oh my God, she looks so nice <laughs> with her curly hair. Motorcycle helmet and his leather gloves. And he gave me the impression of uh, a tough guy or, you know. And they said, how did you learn English? I said, by watching TV, reading a newspaper, self-taught. Being that we were immigrants ourselves, we could understand that there's an adaptation period. And I'm touching my mother's hand. Now I can barely control myself. I'm sobbing in this side and my mother sobbing on the other side. From that moment on, our life turned for better and better and better. The Hopeful is part of the Frequency Podcast Network. Written and created by myself and Portia Larley. It's produced by Claire Brassard. Sound mixing by Ryan Clark. Our original theme song, the one you're hearing right now, is by Ench. Find him on Instagram at Ench Music. Special thanks to Siavash Alamuti and our immigration consultant, Peter Larley. I'm Shada Omidvar. Habarna Mayabad be Omid Didar. <laughs> <laughs>